And so if you would go ahead and turn to John 11. John 11, of course, this is part of the greater study we're doing in the Gospel of John, and then sort of a third part in the raising of Lazarus. Let me pray, and we'll prepare to read the passage together. Now, Lord God, You are great and high and lifted up. There is no one like You. You are the King. You are majestic in all things. You are faithful in every possible way. And part of Your faithfulness is You provided Your Word to lead us to Jesus, to let us see Him, to let us step back, as it were, into the past and see the faithfulness that was part of Your building and planning and preparing up to the time of Christ. And then to see the coming of Christ. His power, His compassion, His faithfulness. To see Him. Lord, we weren't there physically. But we participate in those things that took place on earth in time and space when Your Word is opened. So come, Lord Jesus, through this Word. Awaken minds and hearts. Um, banish from us all those distracting thoughts. Lord, that thing that just flittered, flittered into our mind five minutes ago, let it be set aside and let us see Jesus and Him only. Let us see Him. We pray in His name. Amen. So you remember that Jesus and His disciples were a good distance away when word came that Lazarus was very sick. There was an urgency about it, but Jesus out of his love for this family, delayed two days. In that two days, Lazarus died. It's now been four days since that death. And Jesus came, as we saw last week, and Mary, not Mary, Martha, the older of the two sisters, ran out to meet him before he even got to the village. Where were you? If you'd only been here, my brother would have not have died. Jesus assures her, your brother will rise again. Oh, I know, Lord, I know on the last day. And Jesus says, no, no, Martha. Your brother will rise again because I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And he goes on to say, do you believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now we pick up in verse 28. Immediately after she says those words, verse 28, And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and he's calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went out to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And He said to them, Where have You laid Him? They said to Him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead men, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This ends the reading of God's Word. Everything that happens here is meant to point you to Jesus. For you to see Him for who He is. You see, it's one thing to claim the power to raise the dead. It's another thing entirely to do it. And so, if you're going to say, as he does in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. You better be able to pull that off. And so, as we watch him do that here, as we watch him, think about what this tells you about him, about who he is about what He is able to do in in your life as you trust in Him. There are several things in this account that we need to see and understand as this unfolds. First, we need to see the compassion of Jesus in our times of grief. Pick up the story again in verse 28. It says, When Martha had made this confession of faith, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here. And He's calling for you. By by the way, isn't this how faith works? As soon as we get it, as soon as we see Him for who He is, we want others to get it as well. Especially those we love. Uh, You remember how Andrew did this with his brother Peter back in the beginning of John. John 1, 40-41. It says, as soon as he realized who Jesus was... Andrew ran and found his brother Simon Peter and said to him, We found the Messiah. And so Martha does the same. She runs to get her sister. Mary, you remember, was still seated in the family home, grieving. She'd not run out to meet Jesus. And there's a crowd there around her in the family home. They've come to comfort her. And so when Martha comes and whispers in her ear... Mary jumps up, runs outside, and the the crowd assumes she's running to the tomb to grieve and weep there as well. So they run after her because they really do feel that it is their responsibility to stay with her, to to comfort her, to not let let her be so overwhelmed. And so whatever privacy Jesus had in mind, it's blown at this point. So Mary runs to Jesus, the crowd following behind, and when she gets there, verse 32 says that she throws herself at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same words 
that her sister Martha had blurted out back in verse 21, but without the confession of faith following behind them. I mean, this, this is raw grief. So, how does Jesus respond to this display of grief? And, and almost a sense of hopeless grief at this point. How does He respond? Does He rebuke her? Does He say, Oh, Mary, you ought to have more faith like your sister. And does He ply her with arguments and, and platitudes to try to talk her out of her grief? You know, try to reason with her. You know, sister, all things work together for good. Come on. Uh, Mary, it's going to be fine. Don't grieve. No. In fact, verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit. And greatly troubled. And he said to them, Where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. There's a lot going on in those few verses, more perhaps than at first meets the eye, but, but, but can all, it can all be summed up with one word. Compassion. Compassion means to, to suffer with someone. Co-passion. Compassion means with to suffer. It's, enter into, it's entering into someone else's pain. The Bible tells us in Romans twelve fifteen to weep with those who weep. And, and Jesus is, is doing that here because He's come not only to rescue and to save and to raise her brother, but He's also come to share her sorrow. To take it upon Himself and, and carry it for her. And, oh, Christian, do you understand? Do you understand? He's still doing that for us. Amen. Jesus came not only to bear our sins, but also to share our sorrows. So yes, yes, sin-bearing, sin-bearing. That is the main thing that He came to do. We rejoice in that. We just celebrated it in the Lord's Supper. First Timothy 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. That, he might, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Yes, Jesus came to save. But along with that, as part of that, He also bears our sorrows. Hebrews 4 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to, to sympathize with our weaknesses, who is unable to understand our brokenness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus, in becoming our Savior, entered this life with all of its suffering and its pain, and He didn't stand aloof from it, He didn't stand apart from it, He, he entered it in order to know our sorrows, in order to come along besides, uh, beside us and bear them with us. And you understand that even now, if you're in Christ, even now He's doing that as He reigns on the Father's throne. Romans 8 verse 34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Listen to me. Take comfort in that, dear Christian. Take comfort in that. Christ enters your sorrows. But, but, the, but there's more here than just sorrow for us to see here. Look at those words, deeply moved in verse 33. 
Now, the, the translation of this Greek word is, is a bit controversial, and the reason is because, frankly, the word itself is so very strong. Uh, the word itself actually means to be angry. That's how our friend Martin Luther translates it. Uh, to be indignant. R.C. Sproul says it means Jesus was irate. And so it's a word, literally it pictures the, the angry snorting of a, her, of, of a horse. It's kind of a, deep, a, a teeth-gritting over something. Jesus is outraged here. Why? Well, think about what He is seeing in this moment. These are people He loves. These are friends of His. And they're in pain. They're suffering here. Their hearts are breaking. And Jesus knows why. Because death has broken in where it does not belong. Death has trespassed into their lives. People He loves, people He's come to save, people He intends to give life forever. I mean, never forget, never forget. Death is an intruder into God's good creation. It's a thief that really doesn't belong. It didn't belong there in the garden as God originally made it and gave it to Adam and Eve. No, death broke in through the sin of Adam and it's been waging this war of grief and sorrow against us ever since. And here now, it has come and stolen the life of one Jesus has claimed for Himself, bringing this pain and sorrow and Jesus is outraged. How dare it! How dare death intrude into my kingdom and take one of my people? And he's not going to stand for it. He's not just going to let that go by. Not here, not now, not with Lazarus. But also, by the way, he's not going to stand for this ultimately with any of us whom he has claimed by grace. You understand that death cannot have the last word in the life of any who belong to Jesus. So he says in verse 34, Where have you laid him? He means business. He's going to put an end to this. And then those two brief, tender words in verse 25, Dear, dear one, don't overlook those. Shortest verse in the entire Bible, yet perhaps one of the greatest expressions of the tender, compassionate heart of Jesus to be found anywhere, put there for your comfort, put there for you to understand His heart just a little better, a little bit better. I mean, dear one, if you ever doubt whether or not Jesus can enter your sorrow, whether or not He knows or cares about your pain, go back and read these words again. Jesus wept. Be astounded at that. And be comforted. R.C. Sproul helps us to see this in his commentary. He says, verse 35 is the shortest verse in all the Bible, but surely it is one of the most poignant. It does not tell us that Mary wept. We've already read that. It doesn't tell us that the Jews were weeping. We've already read that. It tells us that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the eternal Word of God, shed tears. Why did He weep? Had Jesus given into despair? Did he not know what he was about to do? No. Though Jesus was on the verge of perhaps his greatest miracle, he entered into the feelings of grief and loss of those whom he loved. He wept with them. 
at the tomb of Lazarus. Be amazed by that. Jesus wept. The word wept that is used here is interesting. It's not the same word that's used for the weeping of Mary or the weeping of the crowds in verse 33. Because as Jesus weeps, His weeping is different from theirs. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 says that when we grieve as believers, knowing Christ, we ought not grieve without hope. We grieve, but not a hopeless kind of grief. But this word, describing Mary's grief at the time and the weeping of the Jews, is is, is a without hope kind of grieving. It's a a word that that means to wail loudly, uh, to lament. With this great noise is the emphasis. It's a word that's full of of noise and, and loss and anguish. Jesus doesn't weep like that. In fact, the word used for His weeping pictures the the, the tears trickling down His face. The the cheeks indeed are wet with tears, but they're not the loud, hopeless tears of of uncontrolled wailing. They're the, the gentle, compassionate tears of confidence in God. The heart is breaking, but there's a confidence there. There's a trust there. There's a reality there. In fact, you'll notice His, his tears actually confused some of the people standing around there. Verse 36 and verse 37 uh, say that some of the Jews look and they say, well, look at this. Look how he loved Lazarus. And surely it is a sign of that, but others wonder, why then? Why, if, if Jesus has such love and such power, why didn't He do something about this? Why didn't He prevent this from happening? Why didn't He step in earlier? And maybe you've wondered that. I know I have at times. I mean, if God loves us, why didn't He just stop this before it happened? Why didn't He step in before it happened? I mean, that's why is He doing it this way? And, dear ones, sometimes none of it will make sense until you get to the end of the story. And you and I are in the middle of the story. And there's lots of things that may not make sense, but it will come together by the end, just as we'll see this one come together. And so you have, first of all, the, the compassion of Jesus. But second, notice also the indignation of Jesus at the presence of death. Verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You heard me. I knew that You always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that You sent me. Verse 38 repeats that word that describes the emotions of Jesus in verse 33 as as outraged, as, as indignant, as angry. If you can picture this in your mind, Jesus is like a champion striding onto the battlefield against the foe. The enemy is in sight and he is determined to take him down. Death, you've had your say. You've claimed your victim for now, but I'm not going to let this stand. 
I can almost picture in my mind if, if death had the capacity cowering in the corner as Christ advances onto the field like it knows what's about to happen. I mean, here a power beyond all powers has entered the graveyard and death's triumph is about to become crashing down. Jesus says, take away the stone. Tombs in that culture, you're probably aware, were either cut out of rock, the soft limestone in that area, or they were natural caves that water had already eroded and created, and then they would be sealed with a rock against the mouth of the tomb. This particular one was indeed a cave, and the purpose of that rock, as you imagine, was to keep the animals out, and also to keep the smell of the decomposing body in. Never one to hold back. Martha says, Lord, wait. It's been four days. There is going to be a terrible stench. And you know, if you've ever smelled a decomposing body, let's say an animal or something like that, you know what she's concerned about. We had a smell show up in our basement one time and we couldn't figure out what it was and it was terrible. It got worse and worse and worse. I began to wonder if some animal had crawled in there, found out we'd taken some meat out of the freezer, put it on a shelf and forgotten about it. <laughs> but, it but it's a nasty, terrible, terrible smell. I mean, it, it reminds her again that death is vile. And by now it is fully set in. I mean, if, it's like death is won. It's claimed its victim entirely. And, and you can hear Martha just almost thinking, well, Lord, let's not put the family through this. No one wants that smell to be the last thing we remember about our brother. Verse 40, Jesus says, Did I not tell you? Martha, weren't you listening? Don't you remember what I just said? Now, what's he talking about? Well, it goes back to what he said a few minutes ago in verse 23. Now, we looked at verse 23 a week ago, but for Martha, it was just moments before. When he told her, Martha, your, your brother will rise again because I am the resurrection and the life, and I'm here now. Amen. And he asked her, do, do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Now, Jesus says, Martha, if that's true, if what you just confessed is true... What are you afraid of? I mean, if I just told you that, that, that you're going to see the glory of God on display, why do you fear? I believe many of us, perhaps most of us, need to hear Jesus saying that to us. Right? In our fear, and our frustrations with this present culture, or perhaps with a difficult marriage, or troubled kids or a bad job, or some sin, or situation you just can't seem uh, to, to deal with, to handle. We let ourselves become convinced that it is hopeless. And we, we need to hear Him saying to us again, Did I not tell you? Have I not spoken? Have I not given you assurance after assurance in my word that I am who I claim to be and can do all I've promised? Do you believe this? Do you? He asked her, I'll ask you, do you believe this? Because, dear Christian, if you do believe this, then trust Him. Trust Him in that situation that's troubling you. Trust Him with those fears and concerns that are keeping you awake at night. Did I not tell you, He says, 
What has Jesus told you in His Word? Go back to it. Go back and read it again. Go back and remember His promises. Take them to heart. Let them strengthen your faith, even now. I mean, go mine the Scriptures for the assurances of Jesus day by day, and then, dear one, lean hard on them. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus' Word prevails, and the stone is rolled away. But, interesting, rather than just rushing in, Jesus stops to pray. Verse 41, He lifted up His eyes. There's actually a really cool word play here. It literally says, They lifted up the stone, and using the same word says, Jesus lifted up His eyes. They lift, Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I knew that You always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that You sent me. It's kind of an odd prayer, isn't it? Because He's clearly not praying for Himself here, but for us, for those standing around. And why do you think He prays this way? It's, I think He does this to help us see what's really going on here. To help us see the relationship that He has with the Father and what it is He can do. In fact, what He's about to do. Why He's able to do what He's about to do. And so first of all, notice that as Jesus prays here, He allows us to get a glimpse into the intimacy that He Himself shares with the Father. I mean, you notice it's like we're breaking in mid-prayer. It's like we're hearing one side of a cell phone conversation. Father, I thank You that You've heard me. Wait, wait a minute. Heard Him when? Well, it's obvious Jesus and the Father have been talking all along through this. It's like there's this running conversation between them, and, 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 and it's been silent up to this point. We've not been privy to it, but suddenly we hear, and, and Father, thank you for hearing. Thank you that you're listening to me. And so here we, we, we get this window into the soul of Jesus and His relationship with the Father and what it means to us. For Jesus, prayer is not an occasional thing. It's not just something that He, that he pulls out and, and, and puts into practice when there's a particular need. It's an ongoing feature of His life. Amen. Just as it should be for us in Him. Right, Paul tells us, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Pray without ceasing, meaning let prayer permeate everything. For the Christian, following Jesus means following Him in a lifestyle of prayer, in a regular conversation with the Father, praising Him through the day for all that is good, seeking Him with all of our needs, thanking Him for His constant provisions, asking His help, when we face a trial, a temptation, or some sorrow. Clearly, this was the life of Jesus. And, and following Jesus, it's what our lives can be like. And so second, notice as he prays in this ongoing conversation, he does so with complete confidence. I mean, he begins with thanksgiving, right? Because he knows he's been heard. 
And because He knows He's been heard, He knows He has the thing He asks according to the Father's will. And of course, as the Son of God, He always prays according to the Father's will. He always asks for those things the the Father delights to give. But dear one, as we walk with Christ and let His Word shape and form our lives, we're told that we can do the same thing. We can pray with the very confidence of Jesus here. First John 5 verse 14 says, This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of Him. And so Jesus is showing us how, how confident we can be in prayer uh, to know that God is present and He's listening. And so it is the place of prayer through the agency of prayer that, that God delights to give Himself to us. He loves to give Himself to us through prayer. Verse 42, I knew that you always heard me, but I said this, but I, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays here so those standing around could make this connection between who he is and what happens next. And Jesus will answer our prayers on this for the same reason so that we can see who he is and put our trust in him for what happens next. Which brings us into the the sovereign power of Jesus to wake the dead. Oh yeah, this is where it gets good. Verse 43 and 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him. Let him go. And Again, just picture this scene in your mind. With a loud voice, Jesus cries out, and you'll be ready for it this time, Lazarus, come out! And knowing what happens next, think about those words. Think about the raw power in those words. You see, these aren't just the words of a mere mortal. These are the words of the one who speaks with the all-powerful authority of God Himself. I mean, you can, you can almost hear the echo going all the way back to that first day of creation when God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And now it's, Let there be life. And life comes flooding back. You ever tell your kids that they're being loud enough to wake the dead? Jesus really was. Again, borrowing from Sproul, he said, Jesus' command really was loud enough to wake the dead. His divine word of command echoed to the depths of Lazarus' tomb, penetrating the grave clothes, and brought life where there was death. The moment the voice of Christ called on Lazarus to come forth, Lazarus' heart began to beat again. Nerve impulses began to race throughout his body and his rotting, putrefying flesh became whole and healed. And Lazarus got up and walked out of the tomb with the grave clothes hanging on his body. When Jesus speaks the all-powerful, creative word, Lazarus obeys. And you know what's really interesting? 
As I was reading this, I noticed that what Jesus actually says here does not come in the form of a command at all. It just doesn't use the Greek word form for a command. It actually uses an adverb and carries the weight of a command because it's the word of Jesus. But technically, it's just a statement. What he literally says is more something like this. Lazarus, out here. <laughs> I don't know, that just pleases me, you know. Get out and come here. But as I say, because it is the word of Jesus, it carries His power to make it happen. Some have noted, of course, that Jesus is very specific. He says, Lazarus, out here. <laughs> Can you imagine if He just said, come out? I mean, perhaps the whole graveyard would have emptied out and all of these formerly dead people stepping up to say, yes, Lord. That day's coming, you know. Jesus said it in John 5.28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice, speaking of Him as the Son of Man, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's a day coming when Jesus will part the clouds according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, and every ear will hear Him. In other verses, every eye will see Him and the dead, beginning with the dead in Christ, will rise first. So what are we meant to see here? We're meant to see Him. We're meant to see His life-giving power. Power to raise the dead physically when He returns, oh yes, but also power to raise the dead spiritually right now. To bring life to those who are dead in their sins through the power of His gospel word. Different, that is the power of the gospel, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 6, Paul uses exactly this picture. He says, But you, speaking to you and me, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, think of His love for Lazarus, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ came to raise the dead. Because those who are dead in their sin cannot raise themselves. Those who are dead in their sin can no more raise themselves to life than Lazarus could have raised himself. Apart from Christ, every soul on this planet is dead in sin with no hope of recovery. Held fast, Paul says here, in Satan's icy grip, awaiting the day of judgment. So how can the dead live? Ezekiel wanted to know that. How can the dead live? How can those cut off from God, the source of life, find life? There's only one way. And it's the Lazarus way. Christ must step in with sovereign authority. Authority. 
and speak the all-powerful Word to wake the dead. Ephesians 5 verse 14 says, Therefore, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. And so, so the raising of Lazarus, no, it's not just a parable. It's not just a story told to make a theological point. It's an actual event. It took place in history. And yet, it is an actual event that Christ carried off in this way so that as you read about it centuries later, you can begin to see Him for who He is and trust Him for what He only can do. I'm going to violate something they taught me in seminary. I'm going to use an illustration by the same guy for the third time. R.C. Sproul. Because it was so helpful, said this. The raising of Lazarus is a glorious picture of what Jesus has done for us. We were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 tells us. But the one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who has the power of life and the power of death in his hands and in his word, has called us from spiritual death and made us alive together with him. We should stand in awe of such love and such power and then fall to our knees to confess that Jesus is the life-giving Savior and worthy of all glory. What a Savior! What a power. But notice, when Jesus called, Lazarus, the dead man, came. That word gave the life necessary for the response. Theologically, we would say this was an effectual call. God's power operating through the Word is what wakes the dead spiritually. It is not something we do. It's not some capacity we have. We don't create ears on our dead soul. We are given them by the gracious working of God. Those who are dead in sin have no power to wake themselves or bring themselves to God. So you can go to them, you can preach to your blue in the face, but they won't come. You can beg, you can plead, you can put on a show. But if they're dead, it's like the old question, what do you call a dead dog? It just doesn't matter, he's not coming anyway. We don't have the power to wake the dead. We don't wake ourselves. This isn't something that resides within us. But let Christ step in. Let Christ speak His sovereign, life-giving Word through the Gospel. And what happens? The dead live. And because it is Christ's Word, it has power to wake dead souls. Dear one, this is why we go out with the Gospel. We don't go out with tricks. We don't go out with our own intelligence. We don't go out with our own power. We go out with the Gospel. We point them to Christ knowing He alone has power to wake the dead and give them life. So Jesus called Lazarus to life, and he came. Verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. (laughs) I wonder what that was like for Lazarus. I mean, to suddenly wake up in the tomb... Voice of Jesus ringing in your ears. 
realizing you're wrapped in grave clothes? Man, I bet he really did shuffle and bounce and jump and do whatever he had to do to get out of that tomb and, and go to that voice, right? And so he comes out wrapped in these linen strips of burial. Jesus says, cut him loose and let him go. And the sisters, what do you think they felt? How did they respond? I mean, we're not told. I really want to know. Do they shout and sing and cry and dance? I wonder. But we're just not told. I have to ask the question, why not? And I think the reason we're not told is because John doesn't want us thinking about them at this moment. John doesn't tell us because he wants this story to end with every eye fixed on Jesus. Amen. You see, at the end, that's all that matters. That we see Him. That, that we are ready to put our trust in Him for who He is and what He alone can do. All eyes fixed on Jesus, resting by faith in Him. Is that you? What's taking place in you this morning? Have you just heard a good story? I hope it was a good story, because it is. It's a wonderful story. But it's so much more. It's, it's a sign. It's a flashing neon light. It's an, it's an atomic explosion saying, Look over here and see this man. And so I want to close with those words we saw last week ringing in your ear. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, that's where it comes down to. Do you believe this? Can you hear His voice calling you from death to life? empowering you to turn from sin and place your trust in Him. And you say, well, I don't know. Well, don't wait for a feeling. Don't, don't wait to, well, do I feel this? Do I feel that? Are you able to look and say, Jesus, I believe. I trust you. Are you able to respond as He says, come out? Hey, listen. Whenever the dead respond to the voice of Jesus, it's because He gave them life to do it. He's not calling you to wake yourself. He's calling you to come to Him. And so if you hear Him calling, come. Come to Him. Place your faith in Him and He will save. Father, King, Jesus came for this very purpose, to wake dead people. He didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. He didn't come to make good people feel better about themselves. He came to wake the dead from the grave and give them what they could never get for themselves, life. So even now, Lord, here among us, wake the dead. Lord, that's all I can do is pray. Lord Jesus, wake the dead. Let them see and hear You. And come. For it is in Christ's marvelous name we pray. Amen.